0: In this episode of Your Double Podcast, Enrique, the founder of Find My Parent, and I speak to Glenn Wood, a Canadian native and former equity sales manager at the Mitsubishi UFJ Morgan Stanley in Japan, who has been fighting for the past five years to gain justice for his paternity harassment case. Before we get to the episode, I would like to remind everyone that we recently launched a petition targeted at the Japanese government to stand up for the 3 million kids who have been trafficked since 1991, legally with the help of single custody laws in Japan. Japan does not recognize joint custody laws as the lawyers and judges profit from it and receive up to 30% of the child support payments until the child reaches 20 years of age. While it's a gain for the lawyers and judges, this is a lost law situation for the children and parents affected by the single custody law. Winning this campaign depends on our ability to call on thousands of supporters like yourself. Your signature is all that we need Please support our petition And tell the governments around the world To pressure Japan to adopt a joint custody law You can find the petition at www.change.org Now, without further ado Let's get into the episode
1: I'm just really curious about what you have to say glenn because i I've, last time i was really intrigued and i bought the book the enigma of japanese power so <laughs> so i have it here with me so i'm going to be reading this on the plane on the way to japan but yeah i'm really intrigued by everything you said um it really resonates with me you're going to really
2: enjoy that book you know and and you know it's it's pretty long <clears throat> but even if you even if you flip to certain chapters and read bits and pieces you i think you'll really enjoy it you know the the bits where he talks about the legal system in Japan, it's, you know, it's pretty much exactly as it is today. It's, it's amazing because that book was written 30 years ago, right?
1: That's right. And I think one thing that really touched in, with me was, uh, based on what I've known, was on the media side of aspects, how the entire media is controlled by the Japanese government. So I briefly just wrapped a, a quick chapter. I was like, wow, OK, this, this ties in with everything that Scott McIntyre has said and what I read and published forums like Exactly. Reddit
2: no i think i think you'll 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 find it very interesting and again you insightful he's very very insightful i find in what he what he writes about japan and people take it negatively at times i don't actually i even after i read the book i still like japan it's not I, 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 but i think any culture or any society it's it's fair to critique that society and he offers he offers a critique which you know, he offered that 30 years ago, and it's still pretty much valid today. And, and, and that critique wasn't welcome in Japan. You know, many politicians spoke out against the writing. So it's... Um, in any case, I hope you enjoy that. Okay. Well do. Thank
1: you. I'll
0: let you take it away. Glenn, first of all, thank you for taking the time to be on this podcast. With that said, while I was preparing for the interview... I had a completely different set of questions to start this interview with. But since you spoke about the book, I'm now curious to know more about the book. Can you give me and the listeners a brief introduction of the book you just spoke about and why do you think it is a good introduction to how the systems are currently (laughs) set up in Japan?
2: Right. So… Carl von Wolferen is, is a professor, and, and he's um, he studied Japan for a long time, and I believe he's Dutch origin, and I believe he's still alive and in, in Holland today, um, perhaps still teaching. But he came to Japan uh, to do some teaching, and he ended up writing this book called "The Enigma of Japanese Power." And as I mentioned to Enrique, the book was written about 30 years ago. Uh, Enrique, maybe if you have the book in front of you, you can give me the exact date. But um, it's uh, yeah, 1989. So uh, pretty much exactly 30 years ago. Um, 1989 was the the first time I came to Japan. Actually, um, in any case, uh, I met Carl when he was in Japan, and uh, I really enjoyed his his lecture, and I really enjoyed his insights. And so um, I bought the book and. For the longest time, I didn't read it. And, and then I started picking it up little by little as I had questions about Japan. And I find that there's many answers to, to problems that we face as Westerners or maybe even foreigners in, in general, non-Japanese in general might, might face. There's many answers in the book in terms of how Japanese society is structured, how religion is used by the, by the system in Japan, how the court system is used how the media is intertwined in the culture and society um, and the financial systems that they've built, how cross-shareholding is used in Japan and how that is intertwined into the society. And it's, uh, it's extraordinarily insightful. So anybody who's interested in Japan, um, I, would, I would highly recommend the book.
0: I will definitely add the book in our show notes and also get a digital copy or an audio book to check it out. now. As someone who has just heard about the book and I've never even seen the cover of the book, I'm generally interested to see your opinion on what are the differences between the system in Japan and what you have seen back home in your home country or the Western parts of the world.
2: Well, Enrique and I discussed this a little bit the other day, but Japanese logic and Western logic are really um, polar opposites. And so, you know, I've discovered over the years in Japan um, if you're facing a situation where you have to make a decision, whether it's in a company or in a team, um, often if I think, if I put my Western, kind of my Canadian hat on, and I, I do the, the logical analysis and I come to the conclusion, if I then flip the conclusion 180 degrees, that is very often the conclusion that Japanese logic will bring you to. And uh, I often... You know, as a very intellectually curious person myself, I often wondered, you know, why that is, or why you know. You start to ask these questions, and this book answers a lot of those questions. So, um, you know, Japan is a feudal-based society, whereas you know, Canada and perhaps the United States are are built on freedom. Right? We, we one of the major tenets of of our societies. You know, we were originally people that were oppressed in other countries and we came to North America so that we could have freedom. And so that in and of itself, it's, it's coming from polar opposite directions. The, the basic cornerstones of our thinking, the basic cornerstones of who we are um, as, as people and our worldviews and our presuppositions about life and, and liberty and, and, you know, the very definition of freedom in Japan, I find is very different than the, than the basic definition of freedom in, in many other countries in the world, certainly capitalistic countries or democratic countries. The definition of freedom is very, very different than it is in Japan. And so all of these types of issues, um, are kind of dealt with in the book. And, uh, you know, it's, the court system, for example, he, he explains very clearly about how the Japanese court system is organized around the political system and is organized around protecting corporate Japan and corporate Japan's interests. And that's kind of the purpose of the court. It has, has nothing to do with justice. And, and so from a Western perspective, when I think of the court system and I think of the legal system, kind of the first word that comes to my mind is justice. <laughs> And, and and so, there again, we have kind of a polar opposite.
0: Glenn, I just had a light bulb moment when you mentioned the nature of courts and politics in Japan. If the courts are organized around the companies and creating wealth for Japan, instead of the freedom and to give fairness and justice to the people, where do people go to get justice in Japan then? What do they do?
2: Well, um... I guess I'm still in the process of discovering the answer to that question. And it's, it's kind of been a 30-year search, and I'm, I'm still searching. So I'm not sure I have the best answer for you. But I can tell you what many of my respected Japanese friends and scholars have told me. So um, when, when this first court, when this court case of mine first um, came, came forward and, and when I decided that I needed to stand up for the many people who I saw kind of being discriminated against and misogynistic practices within the company and whatnot. When I decided to stand up for that, it turned into, um, what, which is still ongoing now, this court case. And in discussions with many of my respected Japanese friends, as I said, and scholars, people basically have said, and even housewives, for that matter, have said, you know, in Japan, if you really want justice, people... Um, people usually do two things: they either turn to the yakuza, or they commit suicide. And um, again, uh, a very different answer than a Western answer. But um, committing suicide in Japan has long been seen as a form of getting justice. Um, and it's again, it's quite the the irony is 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 outstanding. But the idea is that um, you, by killing yourself, you end your pain, you transfer the pain to your enemies, and that pain is eternal. And in that way, in that way, you've you've achieved justice.
0: Yep, you remind me of the World War Two stories that I've read in the past. Japan was famous for having the suicide pilots, or kamikaze pilots as they call it. They will dive their plane into enemy territories to destroy the enemies and also kill themselves in the process. Dying for your country in that way was viewed as an honorable action during the World War II by the Japanese army. Yes. So I'm just wondering if the culture of committing suicide to get justice is derived from the influence of the World War II Japanese kamikaze pilots.
2: No, I think it's very similar. That, that line of thinking, you know, uh, basically at the drop of a hat, the emperor who, you know, from a Western perspective, we see the emperor as just another man from a japanese perspective uh they they still believe in in many instances that the emperor is god um and you know you can you can see in all the ceremonies you know the recent the recent ceremony where we had a new emperor uh you know the 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 emperor goes into a room which nobody else is is able to enter and spends a night with amaterasu who is the sun goddess who is the goddess of Japan, and you know, during that night, the the two of them together then mate and and become bonded, and in that way, the emperor ascends to being a god. And you know that that ceremony we just saw last year, as we got a new emperor, and and so you know, you had you had this god telling a whole generation of young men to to go and commit suicide on behalf of. The emperor or god. And you know, everybody, for the most part, pretty, you know, happily did that. They, you know, they lost a whole generation of 17, 18, 19, 20-year-olds, uh, because of this idea of kamikaze, which, as you know, the translation of kamikaze is the wind of the gods. So um at this in the in the same way, um, if someone commits suicide that is in the winds of the gods and you, you thereby get justice for yourself is, is one line of thinking. And the other line of thinking is um, you turn to the Yakuza and the Yakuza is obviously the Japanese underworld, the mafia, whom you would pay a certain amount of money and they would take care of the problem for you. And that still is alive and well today and that is, those are kind of what people told me Um, is the way Japanese would attain justice. And it has nothing to do with the court system.
0: Right. Before we get deeper into these themes, I think it's important for us to go back to my actual questions so that people are listening will have a general idea on who are you and what happened between you and the Japanese courts and companies. With that said, correct me if I'm wrong. From what I've gathered from online sources, you were a celebrated employee of Mitsubishi UFJ Morgan Stanley. And you were unjustly fired for requesting time off or paternity leave to take care of your son. Is that what happened?
2: <laughs> well, I think you got some of the basics right. Uh, so, um, in, kind of in a nutshell, uh, I, I was hired by Mitsubishi UFJ, Morgan Stanley Securities, um, which is a joint venture between Mitsubishi and Morgan Stanley. And my job was to rebuild the global equities business for them, including Japanese equities. Um, and I was hired in 2012. And uh, you know, for the first few years, I I built an incredible business for them. Um, we went basically from zero to to you know uh, tens of millions of dollars of business in a f- in a fairly short period of time. And my internal evaluations were stellar. Um, all, 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 you know, very positive and, and, uh, things were looking really good. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, I found out my son was going to be born, uh, in 2014. And then, uh, that's when, that's when things started to, to change because my son was going to be born overseas. And in order to go and get him, I needed to take some time off. And when I knew that, I started talking to the company about uh, potentially taking some time off for, for family and from the time I, from the time I mentioned that pretty much, uh, everything changed. the you know the color of my boss's face changed, the, the frequency of our meetings changed, uh, he wouldn't answer my phone calls and so on and so forth. And at the end of the day, you know the, the fact is is what I, what I was trying to do was viewed from from their perspective, as committing treason against the company. I was, asking, um, I was asking, as a man, to take some time off, um, which was uh, for, for the birth of a child, which, which again, was, was viewed as, one, not my job. My, my, I'm married to the company, so why would you consider taking time off for a family? And, and two, it was, um, it was just viewed, from their perspective, as, as kind of the wrong thing to do. So that's that's where it began. That's where the story began. Okay.
0: Now, being someone who is from Malaysia or the Asian part of the world, I know that most Asians are more sensitive than most western people or people from the western culture. I know that there's also a lot of Asians who have the opinion that people from the US or Canada in your case are very assertive and they don't understand the Asian values of being polite. With that said, the Asian listeners who are listening to this podcast might assume that you demanded too much or you were not being respectful when you requested your paternity leave. I just want to make sure that we can clarify that before we move forward. What's your opinion on that?
2: Sure. Yeah, no, that's that's a, that's a fair question, SK. And I'm happy to talk about it. Um, you know, I've been in Japan, as I mentioned earlier, for for about 30 years now, Um in and out, but but for the most part, living in Japan. And, you know, I lived with Japanese people for a long time. My Japanese is fluent, reading, writing, speaking. Um, and if anything, I usually get accused of of being too Japanese in the way I do things. And I think that's part of the reason why, you know, Mitsubishi Morgan Stanley hired me in the first place is because they saw me as as a Western person who actually was very Japanese. And could adapt to their ways of 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 doing business very easily, and so obviously when when this uh, when this came up, I was extraordinarily sensitive to it, and I was you know in a management position myself, so um, you know i was um, I was very very sensitive to to being very Japanese in the way I approached the whole thing and I think um, it may help people to understand that um, and I think you you understand this, but so as the story continued, my my son was born prematurely, um, and he was in the uh, ICU, and uh, the doctors were phoning me from overseas, saying, you know, your your son it looks like he's not going to make it, and as the father, you really need to come right now. And so when that happened, then I approached the company again and tried to explain. Obviously, explained the situation, showed them pictures of my son in the in the neonatal intensive care unit, um, and again asked for some uh, some time off. And and yes, we had you know we had a backup system in place and all that type of stuff. So that was that was taken care of. Um, and basically, my boss looked at me and said, you know, medical medical systems these days are very good. Uh, you don't need to worry about your son. Just go back to work. And, uh, you know, when I was told that I was, I was really shocked, you know, as, as I was going to work that day, I was, you know, when the hospital was calling and I was, I was going to talk to my boss, you know, I, I was ready to go to the airport basically, because, you know, I, I felt I needed to be there and legally I really needed to be there. If, they were telling me, you know, if your son dies, you're, you're the father. You need to be here for legal reasons as well. And so um, it was a real conundrum. And, and I, I talked with, uh, with bosses and with HR for, uh, for several days before I just had to leave. And I didn't, I didn't have any choice. And I think it was, at the end of the day, I think it was, you know, because of that, that they eventually fired me.
0: You mentioned something that I find super interesting. You said that when you asked your bosses for some time off, you knew how to go about it in the Japanese way. What do you mean by that? What is the Japanese way?
2: Well, you know, all of these things, whenever you ask for anything that has to kind of do with yourself, you're always, you know, kind of very apologetic. You're very gentle. You know, you um, you ask for time to speak to people one-on-one. You... um You know, you you approach things in kind of a very uh, direct but indirect way, right? So the Western approach would just be, you know, if I was acting as a Westerner, for example, when the hospital phoned me and said my son was about to die, I would have gone directly to the airport. I wouldn't even have gone into the office. Um, That that would be the Western response. Uh, But again, I, you know, I waited all night because uh, they had called me late at night. I waited all night, and I went into the office very early in the morning. Uh, I was very soft, very apologetic. And, you know, to be honest, by that time, there were there were tears rolling down my cheek, because I was I was worried that perhaps, you know, my son was already dead. And uh, I was just, um, although I had been in Japan a long time, and I understand Japanese culture very well, I still, to this day, uh, remain shocked at the response and the hardness and the coldness and the lack of empathy. And, and um, I, I believe that, that those types of responses actually are, um, create organizations that are not sustainable. So when we talk about sustainability, and I think we can talk about that a little bit later in the call, but when we talk about sustainability, um, those, types of, those types of actions create an organization which is non-sustainable.
0: Did you feel disrespected? Or betrayed by the company that you helped build?
2: Well, absolutely. Right. So, you know, by me, by me in an emergency, family emergency situation, by me asking for some time off, I was immediately kind of rejected by by the whole organization. And 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 that, you know, looking back on it, that's a very Japanese response. It's it's kind of Similar to the things we, we spoke about earlier, but um, still, it's it's very very difficult, even to this day, for me to comprehend that type of inhumane inhumanity and lack of respect for any rights of of a person um, is is still quite quite stunning to me. And by by way of background, um, the listeners may know this, but uh, Japan has had a long decline in the birth rate, and they've got a demographic situation where, um, you know, more people are dying than are being born, so the population is shrinking, which they've long said they want to do something about, and they've tried to do things about. And so about 25 years ago, they actually changed the maternity leave and paternity leave laws in Japan. Um, originally, uh, when, when a woman, for example, would get married— she would be expected to quit her job immediately. And that was kind of the standard in Japan. And then the woman was just in charge of the household. Um, that gradually changed over the years to women quitting when they got pregnant. And so uh, in kind of traditional Japanese organizations, uh, like mine, uh, the, the correct thing for a woman to do when she gets pregnant is to quit, which again uh, exacerbates the economic problems in Japan with lack of workers and demographic issues. Um, And and so this this maternity and paternity leave law basically guarantees up to 12 months leave for both men and women, for both fathers and mothers. And that is um, granted to adopted parents as well. So it doesn't even have to be a blood child. It can be an adopted child as well. And the responsibility of the company is twofold. They cannot reject your application. So anybody can apply and the application cannot be rejected. They have to accept the application. And two, when the mother or father returns to work, they have to return them to the same job. And and those are legal standards that were set many years ago. The reason being, as you can imagine, uh, there was often retribution for people. So if women took maternity leave, when they came back, they would be demoted and eventually harassed and fired. Is how kind of corporate Japan dealt with this new law, and for men, it was just expected that men would never take paternity leave, even though they have the legal right to do so. And if anyone did ever take it, well, they'd they'd just be harassed and fired. That was that was the standard. Um, and 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 so uh, when I when I submitted my application and it was rejected by the company outright, you know that that in and of itself is is illegal.
0: Right. Based on what you just mentioned, I have a two-part question for you. First of all, what happened to your son? Did he survive? As we never clarified that, and I'm sure the listeners are also thinking about the same thing. Next, I know that for any business or a corporate, it is not easy to fire anyone. You have to give proper reasons and do it the right way to make sure that you don't get sued. You mentioned that you were and then fired. So can you explain a bit about how did they go about it? Right,
2: so uh, to answer your first question, uh, very, very gratefully, uh, I arrived and my son was in the the intensive care unit for a few weeks and then he recovered. And so we're very, thank God, yeah, we're very, very grateful that um, he did survive. And he's five years old today. Um. No no he's I just I just meant he's five he's five years old now yeah. sorry yeah no he's 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 five and a half and he's a he's a very strong young man, so we're very very we're very, very grateful that that he did recover and to answer your second question, um, so when I returned to work, uh, uh, the first day back, uh, it was just one shock after another, to be honest, but the first day back and 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 you should you should uh, remember and and uh, remind the listeners that through the time I was off, I was still contacting clients. I was contacting the company, um, even though you're not supposed to do that when you're on paternity leave or maternity leave. You're not supposed to contact your company. That's kind of the rule. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. I was doing everything I can, I could to to maintain the business. So. The first day back, uh, basically, I was called in and I was told that uh, my job is no longer the same. All my management responsibilities have been taken away, and that basically, I was demoted to be kind of like an assistant type of thing. And uh, you know, I was I was just flabbergasted because you know, at this point, you can imagine I'd read all the I'd read all the documents for for paternity leave and maternity leave, and the the facts are very clear. As I as i mentioned them a minute ago the only two responsibilities of the company are you can't you can you have to accept the application and you have to give people's jobs back and so at this point now they they'd, they'd both they'd basically not done either one they and and they they did it very unabashedly and and kind of very in a very proud manner almost as if they were proud for breaking the law and uh, you know i i came to realize as it says in the book that we mentioned at the beginning that you know, large corporations in Japan are above the law. They're not under the law, and and they're very they're very proud in that position that they hold, that is above the law. And they leverage the law and use the law and use the court system and use politicians as they need to to accomplish their overall goals as Japan incorporated, and that's kind of the way the system is built. And um, so when I look back now and I look at how the company responded to me. It's, it's much easier to understand in that context, but it's, it's, it's nonetheless uh, inhumane, goes directly against what the companies say they are doing in their, in their beautiful brochures and on their beautiful web pages. And um, obviously, there's a global conflict here with Morgan Stanley being involved because their approach in the United States is, is obviously very different as well.
0: While researching about you and what happened to you, I read an article that mentioned that you tried to sue the company for wrongful termination and harassment, but the judge decided that you are trying to defame the company and reduce their credibility without any objective basis. Because of that, the judge decided to dismiss the case. Can you explain how did the judge arrive at that twisted decision?
2: Yes. So again, uh, in perspective, this is is very typical corporate Japanese behavior. So... If anybody in the company, you know, if a young woman raises her hand and says she was sexually harassed by her boss, the first thing the company does is is say, that's a lie. So you're lying. And anybody who lies should be fired. So that's the first way they reconcile that and get rid of anybody who raises their hand. And and the second thing is, you know, in most companies, there's no whistleblower protection programs. There's no, um, you know, there's no hotline. And if there is a hotline, a, a harassment hotline, as there was at Mitsubishi, that basically goes directly to HR, and it's a trap at the end of the day. So HR then turns around and phones your boss, and they use that against you to again harass you and fire you. So uh, the system in general is is never ever raise your hand about anything. And your your job as a young woman, if your boss wants to sleep with you, then your boss uh, has that right to do so, and you you must obey. And if you raise your hand, uh, you'll be called a liar. And if you try to sue the company, then the company will say you're defaming the company. And often the judge sides with with the company in those cases. So the, the judge basically protects corporate Japan and says, yes, you're lying, and yes, you're defaming the company. So you are fired. That's typically what happens.
0: I also read that you are trying to pursue the case in the Japanese Supreme Courts now. Can you explain a bit about what's happening with that?
2: Yeah, so currently we are in uh, Tokyo High Court. So there's three main courts in Japan. There's the lower court, uh, the upper court, and then the Supreme Court. And so currently we're in the upper court. And, uh, you know, the most recent development, which again was a shocker, but if you go back and, and read about the court system, as Carl von Wolferman talks about it uh it may not be so uh so uh Mitsubishi and Morgan Stanley have been using this so called evidence against me, including emails and uh internal calendars and things like that, saying that you know what I'm saying is not true just look at these look at these calendars and whatnot. these diaries and and journals and uh So far, you know, again, the court hasn't even asked to see those documents. They've just accepted that they exist and that they're real and that they say what Mitsubishi says they say. Okay? So that's the first point you have to understand, that the judge uh, completely trusts the Japanese corporation and doesn't trust the individual, especially if the individual is a foreigner, then there's no trust given to you at all. Whereas on the corporate side, there's 100% trust given. So even if they talk about a document and they don't submit it, it's, it's viewed from the judge's perspective as the truth in most cases. And so the recent development in our case is our lawyers said, well, if Mitsubishi Morgan Stanley has all these documents they're talking about, then we'd like to see them, please. And, and we asked the judge to show us these supposed documents. And so Mitsubishi Morgan Stanley came back with this, I think it's a 60-page document. And, and the, first, the first 50 pages or so talk about how internal emails have sensitive information so we can't submit them to the court. The emails written at Mitsubishi are meant only for the person uh, that they're sent to, and in no way they can be shown to the public, and that goes against corporate policy. So they spent, they spent like I said, 50 pages talking about that, how it's, how it's very private and sensitive information. And then on the very last page of the document, they said, And by the way, we've now destroyed all that evidence, so it no longer exists. And, you know, when I first heard that, I thought, oh, great, I guess we won. Um, And from a Western perspective, again, uh, you would assume that if someone destroyed evidence, they'd be immediately thrown out of court. As you can imagine, that's not the case in Japan. Uh, The judge basically didn't even blink an eye, from what I could tell, and the case just keeps going.
0: I see. While researching about you, I also did a bit of research on Mitsubishi UFJ Morgan Stanley. In 2018, they had a big press release which was covered by most media sources in which the newly appointed CEO Saburo Araki promised to eradicate staff harassment within the company. He also mentioned that he will investigate complaints and punish employees who mistreat others and made a hotline available for employees who wish to file confidential complaints. Yes. Now, as a person, I believe that anyone, including big corporations, can make massive mistakes. However, if they take swift actions to correct those mistakes and take responsibility for the mistakes, in my opinion, they're still a good company. Unfortunately, I haven't seen any follow-ups from uh, Mr. Saburo or Mitsubishi Morgan Stanley since 2018 on this issue. So, I'm just wondering if they, if they really took any solid steps to address and eradicate the harassment claims, or it was just a lip service or PR stunt to divert the media attention.
2: Right, so, um, my court case began back, or the, this whole situation, remember, began back in 2015, right? My son was born in 2015. Mm-hmm and so this claim uh has been going on for a long time the court case has been going on for a very long time and uh many reporters have questioned mitsubishi morgan stanley uh about what's going on and so uh araki was uh araki came forward and talked to bloomberg while my court case was still going on and it's it's His response was in response to Bloomberg's questions about my case. So, when he talks about eliminating harassment in the company, he admitted to Bloomberg that they have a massive harassment problem at Mitsubishi Morgan Stanley. And he said. Right,
0: I understand that. But if you read the press release and the interview he had with the media, or Bloomberg, as he correctly pointed out, you will see that he promised that he will take severe steps to make sure. Uh, harassments are a thing of a past when it comes to his company. That is back in 2018. Now it's 2021 and your case is still ongoing. So what gives?
2: Well, exactly. So he, you know, he, my understanding is that he said that to try and deflect the tension away from the media attention that my case was getting. So, you know, he, he tried to assure everybody that he was doing everything he could to eliminate harassment but in my case they didn't admit harassment they haven't even submitted documents to the court so you know it seems very disingenuous to me and if he really if he really wants to eliminate harassment then there should have been some follow up reports after that pronouncement as well right so he said he was going to eliminate all the harassment in the company that they had a massive harassment problem all right well what what did he do you know it's been it's been 3 years since he said that so during the past three years, you know who are the perpetrators? How has he dealt with them? What situations have come up, and how has he improved the situation? How has he moved to eliminate the huge problem with harassment they have in the company? Certainly hasn't contacted me. We asked, we asked that Mr. Araki come to court and speak in court as one of the witnesses, because we wanted to ask him specifically these questions, and he denied he denied to come.
0: Now. The article also mentioned that they were penalized a few million uh, by some government body in Japan due to these harassment claims. Is that what happened, or am I confused here?
2: I'm not sure exactly how the company's been punished, so I I won't I won't speak to that. But um, I know that I know that they've had a lot of they've had a lot of problems. Um, you know, I knew of, for example. Uh, a woman that had had a tumor in her throat, and she she came into her boss, who was the same boss as mine, basically, and said, uh, "You know, the doctor says I need to have surgery. It's it looks like it's cancer, and I'm going to need to take you know probably three weeks off to recover." And the boss's response was, "Sure, yeah, go ahead." And the day she came back to work, she was fired. So. You know, these are the types of of thinking. These are the types of policies that um, that I think exist, and uh, they're illegal. They're non they're non sustainable. So, you know, to the extent that everybody's wearing their SDG badges and talking about the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, I think uh, I think this would be a good place to start to making the company more sustainable. And my hope is that they do that. My hope is through this process and through my efforts, that the company has improved and, and Japan has improved.
0: Right. I brought up the press release to highlight the point about how most companies, corporates, or even the Japanese government use media to make sure they look good. But most of the things that are happening on the ground is rarely improving. They don't do anything about it. Even in the case of parental abduction and parental alienation, most of the news are suppressed and censored by the government and anybody who speaks out on it are practically censored by the government as well. I'm interested in knowing what is your opinion on this as you've been in Japan for more than 30 years.
2: Yes, so absolutely. you know, For better, for better or worse, uh, and this is historical, Japan is extraordinarily resistant to change. And, and I think that resistance to change is actually really hurting Japan at this point. But um, you know there there also is a stark contradiction in that resistance to change. So in that same resistance to change, you have uh, you, you know you have sayings, cor- You have corporations like Toyota, whose whose famous uh, approach was you know constant and never ending improvement. Right, Kanai is 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 the famous uh, manufacturing approach from from Toyota, right? Yeah and, and yet on the other hand, there's an extraordinary inertia and apathy and resistance to change. And, and, you know, children are taught from, from a very young age to just fall into line and not raise your hand and not speak up. You know, it's, it's again, a stark contrast to Western approaches where we encourage students to raise their hands and stand up and speak. Um, and, and so that those ripples go all the way through society for generations, if not millennia. And, and so you get this extraordinary inertia. I think it was General MacArthur that said, um, if you don't like change, you're going to like irrelevance even less. And I think that quote is, is still very relevant today.
0: In the last 30 minutes or so, we have discussed a lot about Japan. But let's zoom out a bit. What are the long-term effects of this on Japan? What do you reckon will happen to the businesses, corporates, or even Japan as a country if they keep on resisting change?
2: I think globally, we've kind of turned a page on on our definition of capitalism. And perhaps we're getting back to what I think is the heart of capitalism, which is um, companies that generate outsized profits while adding extraordinary value to society, I think that's kind of the the basic uh, definition of, of capitalism and that that's not even stakeholder capitalism that that that's I think that's just basic capitalism if a company for example uh, if a company is destroying the environment or if a company is destroying society uh, even under a capitalistic umbrella eventually that company will be starved of capital, right? The cost of capital will, will be extraordinarily high and they won't be able to do business any longer.
0: So, Yeah, totally agree. If they keep destroying things around them to make profit, their resources to produce their goods will become more and more scarce. Exactly. Even if you take simple supply and demand theory, we can see that if your resources get more and more scarce, you won't have the supply to meet your demand.
2: Yeah, that's right. And so I think I think part of the place that we went off the tracks a little bit with capitalism is that we started focusing too much on the short term. And so if you hire a new CEO and you task him with, you know, uh, raising EPS over the next two quarters, then his options are actually quite limited in terms of how he, he or she does that. So that CEO, she, she, you know, she might step up and and make decisions that that are actually uh, bordering on unethical uh, on on in order to achieve that that short-term goal. Instead of looking at the company more holistically and over the longer term, and, and to borrow a, a term that we now use a lot, sustainable, right? So, you know, there, there's a lot of irony built into the word sustainable, right? When you start a company, sustainable means ongoing, right? So who who would start a company that, that isn't ongoing. In other words, who would start a company or run a company with the view that this is, that this is non-sustainable, that that, that this company is going to die. Right. And so in, in a sense, you know, I always laugh and there's always a snicker inside me when I, when I hear people talk about, you know, sustainable companies nowadays, because, you know, you mean you're telling me this company was built to die. So if you bring the conversation, you know, back to the new CEO that comes in, you know, uh, historically, they might come in and say, okay, we need to cut costs. Okay, well, fire all the pregnant women. And, you know, that might that might improve the bottom line for a quarter, maybe two. At the end of the day, you know, you're going to have trouble hiring people. You're going to have lawsuits. You're going to have harassment issues. You're going to have corporate governance issues. And And I would say even over, you know, a, a three to five year span, that company is going to be damaged by that decision. And so, likewise, when we think about Japan, and if, even if you go back to you know, my situation, a micro discussion about, or, or the woman I mentioned who was fired for having uh, cancer surgery, you know, if you look at these types of situations, how is that impacting the company now and into the future? Well, I would argue that uh, the quality of people they're able to hire is going down. I would argue that, especially now with ESG investing and 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 we get ESG standards, that ESG standards are not going to allow them to do that. And companies that do do that, and it's in the newspaper, then their cost of capital is going to go up, which is going to make it more difficult for them to innovate and do business. So I think I think even Japan in this in this environment uh, of you know the sustainable development goals from the United Nations as well as um, ESG investing, I think Japan is is going to have to adapt a little bit uh, for this one. Although they'll do it kicking and screaming, and they'll do it very slowly, and they'll do it in their own fashion, I think think you will see change. And in fact, we've already seen change. You might have seen recently the paternity leave law was changed to make it much more easier for men to take paternity leave and uh, give specific directions to corporations. And many journalists have credited that change in the law to my case and, and to my efforts. Whether that's true or not, well, we'll, we'll leave that one alone. But um, it's, it's great to see those changes coming. And in fact, even at Mitsubishi, they made, after my case, of course, they made paternity leave mandatory for all men. So any, any, any man now at Mitsubishi, uh, and I believe Morgan Stanley as well, who, who has a new baby, they must take paternity leave, at least for one day. <laughs>
0: I'm not exactly sure if that's the right long term solution to these though.
2: Well, 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 yeah. And again, it's 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 quite a Japanese way of doing it because what they'll do then is, is all men will take two or three days paternity leave and then they'll submit their numbers to, you know, the, the trade ministry and say, We have a hundred percent of our men taking paternity leave and that will make the company look good. That's you know, that's kind of what they're trying to do.
0: Right. Again, Japan being Japan, they're trying to do what looks good in the media and kind of ticks a box in the checklist kind of thing compared to doing things that will make sustainable changes and make sure that things actually improve.
2: That's right. That's right. So they're not taking the pain. They're just doing window dressing. And, um, and they're very good at that. And again, they have control of the media. The media is pretty much completely controlled by the politicians and the large corporations. So... Um, They have a huge advantage there.
0: You know, when it comes to Japan, people are older, say those who are 40 and above, might have gotten used to the system as it is. How about the younger people, especially those who are in college or just graduated? I'm asking this because if you observe it globally, those who are in their 20s and 30s are challenging many archaic laws and other wrongdoings by government and corporates. Do you think the same thing is happening in Japan as well?
2: Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question and it's tricky to answer. I think you've got, you certainly have different views amongst young people than amongst older people. Um, typically in, in Japan, what happens, and young people historically have always had different views than the old people, the older generation. This isn't, this isn't a new phenomenon that you have a younger generation that has different ideas the whole The whole idea in Japan is how fast you can stamp out those new ideas is kind of the goal of society and And if you stamp them all out and maybe one or two still exist well then they were they were worthwhile ideas, and all the rest weren't worthwhile That's the view that's the way of thinking and and so as uh, soon as a if a young person joins a large corporation, then for the most part those views are are stamped out and they have to fall into line. So the question is, are, are more young people not joining large corporations? And I do think that is the case. I do think there's a higher percentage of young people that have said, uh, or that have tried to join a Mitsubishi and then quit. So I do think you have attrition rates that are rising at the large corporations of Japan, which in terms of societal change and economical change in the country is concerned is a very positive thing. And I do think you have an increasing number of young people that are just uh, trying uh, a startup or working at a startup. Uh, many of those startups are, are squashed by corporate Japan. So uh, I'm kind of of two minds of, of how much change that will actually promote in society. But um, I think the short answer to your question is I think there is marginal change. There's change at the margin which I'm happy about. And I'm obviously very supportive to see that. And, you know, I strongly believe uh, that parental rights are real. This isn't something that we're just making up. And that, you know, and, and if parental rights are, are honored, that it will help the demographic situation, that you will see more babies in Japan. Um, so, you know, I, I do think there's change at the margin versus the rest of the world. The rate of change, I would say, in Japan is still negative, unfortunately.
0: If I can reference back to how you said in the very beginning of this conversation that the Japanese government and the laws are tied to making profits and the very essence of the way the laws are designed is to please the corporate Japan. How about the Japanese politicians? In your opinion, what they should be doing and what they should be paying attention to in order to make sure Japan becomes better as a country?
2: Right. So, um, at the, at the risk of maybe sounding too negative, um, but again, putting this all in context that I love Japan. So please, please keep that in mind. You have, you know, you have an elite class in Japan and the elite class are the politicians and the elite class are, are the key corporate leaders. And, and it's not a large class of people. It's a, it's a, it's a small minority group of people that basically control the decisions and and corporate Japan and Japan incorporated, and at the end of the day um, unfortunately i don't I don't see them showing the concern that I think they should be showing for the for the future generations i don't i don't see um, I don't see policies that are being put in place that are going to help their children and grandchildren, but rather. Um, help themselves. And so that that is something which hurts my heart and, and I'm deeply concerned about.
0: I think the things that you are mentioning, such as being able to take off a few weeks because you have cancer and need to undergo medical treatments, is not just employee rights, but just basic human rights. Agreed. Now, with that said, as someone who's challenging these paradigms in Japan and doing it very publicly as what you're doing, do you have a, do you get a lot of resistance in the form of threats from the government or the corporates in japan
2: yeah, so um basically I stood up and 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 kind of called the bluff of the company right i said uh, you know no i'm not I'm not lying you know and and you don't have any proof that I'm lying in fact, I couldn't be more honest in what i'm saying and 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 not only me but but other people right this is this is the fact and um, and so, when you do that against uh, a large company like like uh, or a large group like Mitsubishi and Morgan Stanley, um, you put yourself, I think, in quite a dangerous situation in Japan. And so, and so, yes, uh, I'm very careful about uh, talking about my family. For example, you know, I want to protect people, and uh, I'm I'm very very uh, cognizant of of threats and, and people that would, would rather me, uh, just be quiet. And, uh, so, so yeah, I think, I think that's a concern and it's, it's certainly not democratic or capitalistic. And I think that should raise a lot of eyebrows. And we've seen, you know, we've seen a lot of situations even recently where, where there are some real ethical concerns about the way the system is being run. Just, just this week, we saw the Toshiba case, right? Where um, we've got we've got some very serious corporate governance issues, uh, collusion uh, with the government. So top management at, at Toshiba colluding with government officials to squash shareholders, and in particular, foreign shareholders. So uh, again, you you know, we see the same issues. It's there's no human rights. There's lack of capitalism. There's lack of dem- democracy, and and there's uh, you know there's misogynistic behavior, as we saw in, in the Olympics comments that came up a couple of months ago, and and these types of things you know just don't have any place in a democratic, capitalistic society, especially when we're talking about sustainability and ESG investing, and so you know i believe japan's in a in a state of evolution you have to you have to recall that it was just 60 years ago that japanese farmers were selling their daughters into prostitution and and so you know if you think about how japan has advanced in the past 60 years they've they've come a long ways and i think they've done an incredible job i just i just hope they can take the next step towards towards human rights and protecting parental rights um so that, so that we can get over the demographic issues and so that uh, young Japanese people in particular can can have children.
0: On top of the lack of importance given to parental rights in Japan, I also happen to think that Japan has some other critical issues when it comes to just human rights. I read a news article a few weeks back about how Japan do not recognize same-sex relationships. In that article, they mentioned a lady sued the Okaido local government due to the fact that her spousal benefit application was denied because she was in a same-sex relationship. Do you have any opinions on yeah, this Yeah, so method? again, there's
2: a lot of window dressing, and and you know, certain certain towns have rec- have recognized the rights of you know uh, LGBTQ and 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 so on and so forth, but. Again, when you when you raise these types of um, human rights issues, including parental rights, including the abduction issues, including LGBTQ rights, including minority rights, including Ainu rights, when you raise those to the upper echelons in Japan, uh, for the most part, what I've seen over the past 30 years, they, they just get squashed. Yeah, so the price in Japan, because of the way society is built, this is very clever, the way it's built, by the way. it's very it's very clever, and I think, uh, to a certain extent, it's on purpose. You know, you've got a homogenous society, which is basically monolingual. So uh, there's very, very few people in Japan that, that speak fluent languages other than Japanese. And so basically, you've got 120 million people trapped on an island. And, uh, and if, you, if, you, if you're told, if you're taught from the time you're a kid, don't raise your hand, and then at some point, you decide to raise your hand. Again, that's the wrong thing to do. And you, you are going to be squashed. You'll, you know, you'll be fired from your job. You won't be able to get another job. Uh, often, the, the family job is what is used for children's school applications and things like that. So if your father gets fired, often you, 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 know, you won't be able to get into a school. And, so, uh, and the neighbors will often harass you if you get fired or you put up your hand. So you've got you've got a society which is built on these on these precepts, which prohibit people from raising their voice, from speaking up.
0: Another article that I remember reading was about how an engineer in Toyota committed suicide due to an harassment by his bosses and colleagues, and he was just overworked by the company. Do you know anything about that case?
2: Sure. Yeah and And it was a very big case, and I think it's it's another uh you know it's another uh, example of of something that was kind of buried and the parents I think of the person who committed suicide followed up and followed up and i do I do give credit to Toyota for coming forward now and apologizing and admitting that that is what happened that the person was harassed and they apologized for that um, I hope that they I hope that they compensate that family uh, an extraordinary amount for the pain and suffering they've they've gone through, and that they're going to go through going forward. But I do I do congratulate uh, Toyota for for coming forward and admitting that it was harassment and apologizing for that. Um, I hope they they follow through as you know Araki has promised to do, and eliminate harassment uh, as much as possible so that we we don't have these suicides. Of people being harassed going forward, but again, you know, I uh, I think that's coming forward and admitting it and apologizing, taking responsibility, is the first step really to to making advancements rather than just these platitudes of, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get rid of all the harassment. I promise, I promise. You know, come come forward, come forward and be honest, right? Yeah, we uh, we did the wrong thing when it when it came to Scott. We did the wrong thing. When it came to Susan, we did the wrong thing when it came to Glenn, and this is how we're changing, and this is how we're going to improve as a corporation. You know something like that in today's society would actually uh, be extraordinarily beneficial for the company. You get a lot of a lot of free advertising. You become a a leader in terms of of sustainable business practices. Um, and the opposite of denying the problem and fighting it in court, at the end of the day, is, is the cost of that, I think, is, is going to go up uh, astronomically going forward.
0: Right. And we have listeners who are from all over the world and they are coming in from different walks of life. I'm just wondering for those who are listening, what they can do, what people like myself, you know, we are not in Japan, what can we do to help the situation when it comes to things that's happening in Japan, things that we already discussed throughout this episode?
2: Right. Uh, it's a great question. And I think, I think there's a lot we can do actually today. So, and, that's, and that's part of why I think Japan is going to run up against this wall where they find they have to make uh, some changes. Um, one of the major things that is different, as we all know today, than, than it was perhaps 20 years ago, is social media so um social media is very powerful, and Japan is still struggling with how to deal with social media they haven't they haven't they haven't really got on board yet um but it is having an impact and so um you know many of many of my posts now uh, they get you know a hundred thousand views um, and so you know there's a hundred when i that that used to be like kind of the readership of some of the large newspapers, right there's newspapers that have Less readership than hundred thousand, right? And and so um, I don't I don't say that in any way to to shine a light on me. I say that very humbly and very gratefully to to say to Mitsubishi, Morgan Stanley, and to corporate Japan that the age the age of hiding dirty laundry is over. You're you're no longer able to hide the dirty laundry as you used to be able to hide it. We have. We have multiple social media platforms, we have Glassdoor, we have ratings of companies, and, and this is only going to expand. This access to data is only going to expand dramatically going forward. So you know, to a company like Mitsubishi Morgan Stanley and to Japan Incorporated, I would say, you know, embrace this data, use this data to enact ESG strategies, to enact SDG strategies within your company, and get on board with what what sustainability really is, and that and that begins with taking responsibility, right? You need to take responsibility and, and admit when you make mistakes, and then move forward with with an ESG strategy. And you will find, I think, that the change will come, and you'll be extraordinarily successful. And that that equally applies to uh, the abduction issue, right? We've, um, you know, you, you, you can't you can't deny. Parental rights to, to any parent, unless there's extraordinary circumstances of abuse or something. You know, you can't. Um, it's, it's, it's the right of the children and it's the right of the parents to, um, to, to be parents and to take on their familiar role.
0: Absolutely agree with what you're saying. Something interesting that I notice about you is the fact that you genuinely want Japan to improve and you're not carrying any kind of aggression, hate, or resentment towards Japan. I notice it in your answers, where it seems that you still have innate love and admiration to Japan in some way. Am I right?
2: Well, I appreciate that, S.K. Um, some of my some of my best friends and my deepest relationships in life are are with Japanese people. I have um, extraordinary admiration for for families, for for a lot of um, of a of, of very uh, it's it's very difficult to describe, but they're very spiritual, very enlightened,
1: uh,
2: extraordinarily intelligent, very empathetic, um, loving people that, that you know it's it's a culture that has developed over millennia. And and you have um, you know, my my homestead family where I where I first lived in Japan. I still call them my mom and dad, and they call, they call my son their grandchild. And uh, that will exist forever. You know, that's never going to change. And that's a relationship that I think uh, I would struggle to have in many Western countries for many reasons. And, and so, so, yeah, there's, there's a myriad of things I love about Japan, but there's nothing comparable to Japan. Um, the love and respect I have for the average Japanese person and especially for those who have adopted me into their family.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you, Glenn, for all that. That was very insightful. Everything you talked about that I guess my question is for you, given that you give us such a huge background, um I had discussions with Japanese um regarding The parental rights currently right which i think it's it's a it's a fundamental human right why is it that they in your opinion based on what you know about their history and their way about their personalities culturally why is it that they can't all come to an agreement because when i talk to foreigners who are fighting for this in the in the political scheme they say it's just a culture thing that japanese just can't unite why and on the other question on the flip side of that is like, why is it that they're not more proactive, at, proactive in um in public speaking about their own rights? In Korea and China, whenever they feel like their civil liberties are being violated or being quiet down, even in China, communist China, you hear you, you see Chinese rising up. You see it going on in Hong Kong. You see it going on in Taiwan. But why is it in, in Japan that it's just the government can just step all over their citizens and they just, okay, move along. Not a word is said.
2: Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's a it's a great question. And the, uh, the answer is not a simple one, Enrique. So, um, you know, I, I'll apologize up front if I simplify anything or I make generalizations that I shouldn't make. Um, but but let me make a few observations. Um, I alluded to this earlier, but but one, uh, you know, Japan is largely, uh, in terms of, of a culture, is is quite homogenous, and uh, they're very clever. Um, even though historically there was more uh, heterogeneity in, in the culture they're very clever to use the media to squash that concept of heterogeneity and emphasize that we are a homogeneous culture and and that and that is 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 one of the keys to understanding and to come into the answer to your question and so um, with that homogeneity comes again monolingual so if you compare Japan as you just did for example to some of the other Asian countries, um, you'll find, for example, in China. China is very multicultural. There's 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 many languages, there's many cultures in China, and those, um, to a certain extent, have been have been squashed and limited. And some some cultures are are being extraordinarily harassed. But in general, you still have a very multicultural society and a multilingual society, which is very. A very stark contrast to japan um, Indonesia as well right you've got You've got several languages and several cultures uh, that are fighting against each other and and have internal disputes and so on and so forth. those have those have largely been eliminated in japan over over generations. Um, and you know when I first came to Japan, even people spoke about the Japanese race. Well, uh, that was something that was promoted, I think especially during uh, the Second World War time, but um, as we all know, there is no such thing as a Japanese race. Um, but but that was something that was very strongly promoted as part of, I think, a nationalistic strategy. So that's one observation. Let me let me give you just a couple more, and then I'll then I'll then I'll be quiet. Um, uh, Japan has a very different view in terms of male and female roles in the culture. So we talked about this, I think, the other day, but um, you've got what I call a maximalist feminist uh, society in Japan. And maximalist feminist basically means that the roles of the man and the woman in society are not viewed as unequal, but they're viewed as completely different. So uh, the man and the woman might be equal, and in many cases, the woman might be more powerful than the man, but their roles are completely Separate and divided, and they're not supposed to take on each other's roles. And if they do, then they become kind of an outcast in society. And so it's it's socially controlled to the point where you know the man when he joins a company basically marries the company, and his first priority is to the company. And and uh, then the woman uh, when she gets married quits her job, and her responsibility is is to take care of everything. To do with the household, so whether it's the household finances or whether it's uh, raising the children or deciding on schools or paying the bills or cleaning the house or cooking dinner, all of that is the wife's domain, including, um, as as you probably know, controlling the finances. So historically and and still oftentimes in Japan, the the husband's salary gets deposited directly into the wife's bank account, and and the husband gets a stipend to to live off of and so this is historically what i call maximalist feminist uh, nature to japan which again uh is part of this human rights issue uh because obviously the children are the property of the mother under those under that regime and so the court's decision then under that cultural presupposition becomes very clear the court has to has to give the children to the woman because they're her property to start with and and so and so that's that's another key i think to answering your question the third and then i'll and then i'll leave it but the third key to understanding i think the answer to that question is looking at uh how again religion and 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 how morals and ethics are taught in japan so the basic understanding that's taught to japanese children is that the elite class in japan the people that control J- japanese society whether it's the politicians or or whether it's the uh, corporate leaders or K. Donnan, the elite in society, they, at their heart, they're taught that that, that, those, that elite class are benevolent. In other words, everything that that elite class does is for your benefit, and they wouldn't do anything to hurt you. And so you can imagine if you're taught that from a time you're, you're a child and you believe that the elite class, the ruling class in Japan, are benevolent and they're doing everything they can to benefit you as an individual. Well then yeah, you don't need human rights. Human rights disappear. So those those are kind of the three keys that I would throw out there to to come into an answer I think to your question.
1: Yeah, I mean I think thank you for that. And and I'm just thinking here um what would it take in modern Japan to have that culture shift,
2: right? So that's where it becomes very tricky, um, because that cultural shift would have, I think, both positive and negative impacts on Japanese society. It's not, it's not something that would just be positive. Um, and so many of the things that we love about Japan, you know, uh, are a result of of these cultural traits, right? Um, you know, the trains don't come on time all by themselves, right? and 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 it's the fact that nobody has guns in japan well that that's not coincidence, right? <laughs> that's by design and 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 those are um you know the reason you can you can walk on the streets relatively safely at any hour of the night, even in a large city of thirty million people, is again, it's a result of these cultural traits that that we both love and hate but but yeah i think I think there is a realization certainly an arising realization in Japan of you know kind of what human rights are and yeah maybe i have some is kind of the realization that i think is slowly emerging in Japan and i hope it i hope it uh, accelerates um, i think i think financially uh, for example the the whole concept of maximalist feminism it's becoming financially impossible in many areas in Japan and that's again I think why one of the reasons why the birth rate birth rate continues to fall because the calculation is very simple right if you're a young married couple and you want to have a child then basically the economic, the finances of that are you're going to cut your income in half and your costs are going to double <laughs> because one of the parents is going to have to quit their job according to Japanese culture sure. and it's probably the wo- the wife so you lose half of that income and if you have a child, well, obviously your costs are going to double. And in, in many cases, that's that's an economic equation that doesn't work for families. So then you have people choosing to delay having children is kind of the result. And if that goes far enough, then and people and society decides that they really want to have children, then then that's a huge motivator to make changes, I think.
1: When I was married to my ex-spouse was Japanese. I'm American, born in California, San Francisco Bay Area. You go to school here, you go to university, try to get your degree, high GPA. You want to get a good position, starting job at a, at a whatever company, organization you decide to work with, and then you hustle. You work really hard, you spend extra hours trying to show to your boss that you're worthy of getting a promotion. And you work your way up through the ranks. And and if everything goes well, in your mid-30s, late-30s, you're in a management position. Senior, VP or something, whatever that sort director level. I got married very young to my ex-pouse who's Japanese. And she would say, I don't understand why you put so much effort into working. And I tried to explain to her the American way. And she explained to me the Japanese way, which I didn't quite understand until I moved to Japan. That in Japan, it's not about if you're the smartest or put the most effort in. It's about to, have to do with seniority, how long you've been in an organization. And when I was going through my divorce in Japan, I go, I walk a lot, sit down at coffee shops, and looked at society. And people that I met there, and correct me if I'm wrong, you were in a management position in in Japan. It had nothing to do with how smart you are or how much effort you put into into working at that organization. It, It really had to do with how long you've been in that company. And another thing that I learned there was that salaries are basically identical across the board. And it all has to do with depending on which age group you fall in. Based on my having conversations with individuals. So when I took a step back and analyzed that, I was like, well, it doesn't matter how hard you go, you're not gonna get paid any differently. It doesn't matter which organization you go work with, pays pretty much across this is the same mm-hmm. around, around across different organizations and across, you know, different levels of jobs. they give or take within X percentage points. So the Delta was not that hard. So it also didn't, I, I felt perhaps that it, it didn't promote um, independence and also a legitimate work ethic of wanting to do it, but it was more like you're forced to do it. And in that, I find that very hard hard to sustain that level of effort for 20 30 40 years you're in the workforce and i also think that also has an impact in terms of why people don't want to have families because like okay my 20s and my mid 20s or early 30s no matter what i do how hard i work i'm going to make x amount of dollars what's your take on that or did i analyze everything incorrectly during my sit-downs and analyzing people
2: no i think i think uh thank you for that Enrique, and and i think you've hit another another key to, um, to understanding Japanese culture and Japanese society and Japanese economics. So, um, and I'll come back to a comment I made earlier about, you know, Western logic leads you to one conclusion and Japanese logic is often 180 degrees. Um, and at, at the risk of sidetracking a little bit, uh, you'll probably remember because we're not that dissimilar in age, there were there were a lot of popular psychology books when we were when we were teenagers uh, that talked about uh, the problem of codependence in the United States and 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 uh, in Western cultures um, and and how bad codependence was. Codependent even now I think we've got buzzwords right. Even I hear young people talking about codependent relationships and how bad and, and in a very kind of uh, negative light. Well. Uh, Japan is all about codependence, and the whole culture is built on codependence and interdependence, um, and that is in stark contrast to Western thinking. And you can see that flow all the way through society, whether it's families or corporations. You know, when when a, when a baby's born in a Japanese family, well, typically, uh, the historically the mother goes to her hometown, so she doesn't even. She leaves her, her husband, who, again, is I'll, re, I'll remind the listeners, the husband is the property of the company. So it doesn't matter if he's there for the childbirth, and he's not even, he's not even expected to really take, take an active role in that. And so uh, the wife will go home to her familial hometown and her family, and she'll have the baby. And basically her mother will teach her how to take care of the newborn baby. And after three to six months, then she'll come home to her husband is is historically the way it's done. And then even after she comes comes home, then she typically sleeps in a separate room with the baby away from her husband and the baby and the mother sleep together. And in some cases that that co-sleeping arrangement can can be maintained until the child's in their teens. Um and again that's completely different than western ways of Thinking and child rearing. You know, I was, I was put in a crib and I was then put in my own bed as soon as I stopped rolling out of bed. And I never slept with my parents. Um, and that has that has an impact, right? And the whole, the whole nature of the relationship is based on codependence. We're codependent on each other for life. We're interdependent on each other for life. And there's a really good book by by Doy uh, that's called The Anatomy of Interdependence. Which discusses this whole concept of Japanese interdependence, um, but that's one point I would make after your comment. The second point is you're absolutely right; there is no meritocracy, um, and again, that should be a warning sign. You know, people see that and they think, "Oh, this is so." There's no meritocracy. That means it's kind of no competition. That means it's warm and fuzzy type of environment. But uh, the warning sign here is that if you have no meritocracy, then you don't have capitalism. Because capitalism is built on meritocracy. So then if you don't have capitalism, what do you have? And you know, I'll, I'll, let, I'll let the listeners decide for themselves what, what they think it is, but I would argue that it certainly isn't, isn't capitalism. And yes, salary standards, uh, salaries are basically standardized, so there is really no incentive to do better than anyone else. And in fact, someone who does stand up and do better than somebody else then is usually squashed and often harassed. And if they continue to do better than other people, then they're often fired. Um, So that eliminates the whole notion of meritocracy within a Japanese corporation. Um, And the last comment I would make is all of this system is supported by an extraordinarily draconian uh, tax structure. So uh, the average salary man, if they do get paid more, they pay the majority of that away uh, in taxes. And if it's not taxed while they're alive, then there's a death tax, which takes away the rest of the seventy percent that's left. So um, the whole system is is designed around this um, this this culture of of interdependence.
1: Yeah, and and you know, thank you for that. I appreciate that. And one thing I actually want to, if you can, kind of explain to our listeners, is the pay structure in Japan. About the salary slash bonus system, how it works. To me, it was the most mind-boggling thing when I heard about it. Um, Thankfully, I never worked for a Japanese company. I never do. But basically, my understanding, it was like you get paid like $30,000, your base salary. And then you get a bonus of like, I think it's 50% of your salary or something in that. And it's divided into certain chunks of that throughout the year. And that's calculated as part of your salary, as your package deal. However, the bonus is dependent on the manager every time it has to be issued out. If, if I understood this correctly, it was, it was bizarre. So it was like, there's a dependency of someone actually approving you to get your real salary or something. That's what I was like. Yes, that's, that, that's, that, that's correct.
2: Your basic understanding is correct. Um, typically, the quote bonus isn't as we would think of a Western bonus, which is often or usually meritocratically based. It's just some um, percentage of your salary that's withheld. And uh, it is usually paid twice a year, uh, June and December. And it's pretty much standardized. But yes, the manager has the right to, to decline the bonus. And so it's interesting that you brought that up because if you've read in my court case at all, that was, that was one of the points of contention is that uh, when I came back from paternity leave, uh, they no longer paid any bonuses to me. Um, and, and, uh, the company's, you know, the company's argument was that they, you know, they said, well, we want to be compassionate to Glenn and we want to give him more time to spend with his family. And that means that we can't pay him a bonus. Um, but as you alluded to, it's basically withholding salary and, and by canceling my bonus and demoting me, they were, they were obviously punishing me for what they, uh, viewed erroneously and illegally as, uh, as committing treason.
1: Yeah, and when I first found that out, I was like, wow, this is mind-boggling. Basically, it's to the discretion of your boss to give you your salary or not, <laughs> which is... Exactly. And then I guess another thing that I guess I want, you can kind of explain to our listeners is, and when I explain this to Americans, they look at me and their jaw hits the floor and they don't believe me is the hiring process in order to actually be hired by a company in Japan and the level of background check that they do about you as a hu- individual and also about your family. I recall when my, I was still married, my spouse then showed me this form that she had to fill out, which was, I mean, it would have been HR violations all across the board in the United States but it included information about me, about our daughter, about her families, her sister, literally everything. I was like, wow, like even, even to the extent if I recall correctly who the daycare provider was for our daughter. And I was like, I, I, can't, I can't believe they're going, they're asking this level of detail for a job. But going back to what you were saying earlier, I felt like they were finding out everything about her because they own her after that. And it was scary.
2: Yeah, exactly. So, uh, and again, we're, we're generalizing here because there are a lot of new companies, I think, that are different. But in general, uh, large corporate Japan, uh, when you join the company, you're viewed as property of the company. Your first priority is always the company. And the company... Uh, is in turn supposed to, quote, take care of you. Um, and again, that taking care of you relationship requires that they know everything about you, um, including, yeah, your your second cousin's girlfriend's name. So, you know, it's, it's, it's quite extraordinary, and it's a level of, I think, information that many people in the world would be uncomfortable with.
1: Yep, 100% on that, and... I think you know, I think my takeaway of living in Japan very shortly, very briefly, I, I actually I-, I feel sorry for them. I, for the ja- for the Japanese who live in Japan. Many who do end up leaving Japan. I understand now why, when I spoke to them, they said they never wanted to go back. But even those who do live in Japan, looking back, I have a lot of sympathy for them. and 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 the reason is because if you talk to them on one on one, they do have their own opinion, and, and and they do not agree with their system. But however, they just don't stand up together as one, and um, and talk about it in public and bring it bring awareness to it. I mean, if I were if I were having a a, a conversation with one on one on a friend at a cafe, he would tell me all about what's wrong with the with the system, and then we invite some another friend of mine over to uh for coffee and then he everything everything's perfect in japan nothing's wrong with it i'm like what what just happened we were just talking about how it's you know everything's wrong um and vice versa when i had coffee with the other with the person you know they tell me like yeah everything is wrong but in front of other people no everything's okay everything's perfect it's like guys you guys realize you guys have the same beliefs and you guys want to change your country for better but for whatever reason you guys just don't want to talk about it among yourselves. And it was stressful to me. I was like, <laughs> um, because it feels like, for lack of a better word, it's just, they're just brainwashed. Or at least on the, on the on that facade, on, on the public image on how to behave. Sure. So,
2: so yeah, if I was to play the devil's, devil's advocate, I would say, you know, it's arguable that all of us are brainwashed, right, to a certain extent. So it's, um i think it's i i want to agree with you because in general i i believe that there there is some quite dangerous teachings that can be classified i think as as brainwashing and i think you know you could you could argue for example that that the kamikaze movement that sk brought up earlier you know that that's arguably on the back of brainwashing and it's 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 very dangerous. Um, On the other hand, you know, there's there's a strong. I think the the concept that you're talking about when you you know you bring other Japanese with the conversation, and then all of a sudden everything is fine. um, I think that's again that's nationalism. That's that's very strongly ingrained in people. Um, It's it's the whole system of being Japanese. Uh, Karl von Wolfram refers to it as Japanism. in other words, looking at Japan overall as a religion. And I tend to ascribe to to his thoughts on that. I think I think it is much more overall. The whole culture in general is much more like a religion than it is like uh, like a culture or 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 simply a political movement. Got it.
1: okay that That, that would explain a lot, I guess, yeah.
2: Well yeah because religions religions don't have to be rational right you've got you've got faith involved you've got you've got all sorts of you know quote brainwashing types of events that are involved in the in the religion that that wouldn't be accepted in for example a democracy um or or in capitalism for that matter so um if you view if you view the whole system as a religion uh, then, then suddenly, a lot of things make sense. Wow,
1: that's
2: that's, that's
1: very true. I never thought about it that but... way. And I think I think most
2: people don't, and that's and that's part of what I I hope to convey in in this conversation as well. That um, you know, when people go to Japan for the first time, or or go to live, or what have you, I think a lot of people just say, well, you know, it's Japan's version of capitalism, and things are things are a little bit different. But at the end of the day, we're all human. And, uh, and we'll work it out is the general approach. I think to a lot of people that go and visit Japan, but if you actually went to Japan and said, okay, I'm entering into a religion. Um, and you know, a lot of these, when I enter in somebody's house, it's kind of like going to a church. Uh, then I think your perspective is very different. And then, for example, when you see, uh, when you see these human rights abuses, or you see, you know, people people locked up without a lawyer uh, for months and months on end, uh, because of some rumor, you know, then it all makes sense, right? Because if it was a religion, then that then that would be understandable.
1: That, that makes one hundred percent sense. Though. Wow, I never thought about it this way, but you're absolutely right. It, it is a religion. Um, how they approach everything in life there, it, it's it's cult like. <laughs> It really is. That's uh, right. And, and you, have to,
2: you have to subscribe to the religion in order to be a Japanese person. So that's, that's another important point. You can't, you can't opt out of the religion.
1: And, and, and I think that's probably why I didn't fit in. I, I never subscribed to that religion. I, I just would not. right. right. <laughs> and,
2: you know, part of the religion is, I would argue, being monolingual in other words not being able to communicate fluently in other languages is one of the one of the kind of precepts of the religion and in that way it's a very clever system in that way because then you trap everybody on the island and as as i think you observed earlier many japanese who do go abroad at a young age and learn another language they never fit into the religion after that and they often find themselves especially women most women most Japanese women that I know that are fluent in English do not live in Japan.
1: Yeah, I, I think you're right on that. I think well, many Japanese women that I've met uh, would uh, say the exact same thing as you. is like they don't want to live there. And, uh, and, and even any Japanese people that I know is, um, yeah, once they, once, once they go out and they know another language, they don't want to go back. But they just don't have a choice because they don't have a visa to live abroad. And if they do, they'll do anything within their power to always live abroad one way or another yeah because they don't you know right they don't fit into the religion anymore
2: and if you don't fit into a religion it 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 becomes a very uncomfortable place to be
1: that's true that is very very true and and, and i think yeah that that's an interesting perspective that i'm just right, currently just trying to process um right now at the moment it took me a while to, to get to that, to, to see this this way, Glenn. Thank you for that. Wow. Um, you're right, because I think about this, right? I'm thinking I, I met many I met professors while I was in Japan, university professors and middle school professors and elementary school professors. And I remember one of the conversations I had with one of them was, uh, how often do you guys teach English in school? Like, oh, yeah, we do it once a week. I'm like, okay, once a week. You can't learn a language once a week. I'm like, hello. Is it all day class? Like, no, it's only one hour once a week. Well, I mean, like, well, you're not going to learn any language that way, one hour a week. Um, and you're right; you're just you have this island, and I guess now I get why a lot of Japanese have always told me island mentality. It's a small island with an island mentality. Uh, you close all its borders. You speak only Japanese, and you partake in this religion. That's right. And if you're if you're born into that. You know,
2: you really don't have much choice because by the time you realize that this is a religion, it's too late. So you're already deep in the system. You're already deep in the organization. You already have passed the prime age of learning another language. You've passed the prime age of learning another culture and of traveling abroad. And the religion is keeping you so busy running on this wheel, the religion wheel, that you really can't jump off. If you jump off, it's almost committing suicide. And so that's, that's why the system is so clever in, in assuring that, that uh, it's homogenous and that people don't leave um, and that you don't have the brain drain that you would have in countries, in other neighboring countries, right? So if everybody spoke English and they didn't like the system, then they would just leave and they would leave from the smartest people first, right? Um, and we haven't seen that in Japan for this very reason that, uh, you know, they do this kind of laissez-faire approach to learning English and they tell everybody they're learning English and actually they're not. It's, as you said, it's, it's, it's very superficial, it's window dressing. And I would argue at the end of the day, it's part of the overall strategy of the religion, um, is to make sure that people are monolingual.
1: Yeah, that makes a hundred percent sense. Um, and, you know, what's scary is for those parents like myself who have children who are half Japanese, that's, yeah, that's an eye opener in terms of anybody who's thinking about going to Japan and having a half Japanese children.
2: Yes, it, I think it is. I think it's... uh it's a decision that I think often is taken too lightly.
1: A hundred percent. I never thought about it this way. Had I known, I probably would have not been who I am today. Okay, I'm, I'm speechless now. SK, you can take it with here, Glenn.
0: Yep, I'm shocked by what I'm hearing as well. It really does make sense if you look at it as a religion. Now, with that said, Glenn, I will include your links and your change.org petition in the show notes as well so that people can follow you. And get the most recent updates on your case. Do you have any messages to our listeners? On top of that,
2: thank you very much, SK. Yes, um, I think uh, I think any support we can get in terms of social media and the Change.org petition, um, as well as uh, following any any posts on 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 LinkedIn, Facebook, etc., Twitter would be would be very very much appreciated. I would say, um, you know, during, during, this, during this very difficult time, um, a friend and I started a new business that I'd like to tell the listeners about. Um, please take a look at our homepage. It's, it's called smartvisionlogistics.com. And uh, it's, again, for me, it was a completely new area, but, but I'd done some consulting in the area of logistics. So I, was, I had some familiarity with it. And my, my long term friend, and now business partner in Nakazawa-san, and I started this, this business together a couple years ago. And you'll notice on the homepage that the the business, the foundation of the business is, is sustainability. And my hope is that, um, uh, that my approach becomes kind of a two-pronged approach. One, on the one hand, uh, I'm, a, I'm a parental rights activist. I'm a human rights activist. On the other hand, I'm actually showing kind of how how sustainable business practices can be achieved while being a successful business in Japan. And so we founded the business in Japan. We've since started to expand globally. But uh, our business is based on, on SDGs, on an ESG strategy. Um, we have clear no harassment policies, whistleblower protection programs. Uh, all men and women take paternity and maternity leave et etc um, i 'd welcome people to to take a look at the website and uh, and give us any support they can there as well because I think as we hire uh, Japanese men and women um, and and again're we 're very cognizant of promoting women into management positions as well that 's another goal within the company is to increase the the number of women in leadership um, i think I think uh, well, we're we're hopeful that we can set an example, um, and that we'll draw some attention for uh, different ways of doing business for sustainable business practices. So that's that's one thing I would I would ask people to take a look at. Second, um, on the back of that, uh, we have a book coming out uh, probably at the end of this year that talks about not only my experience but but others' experiences, um, and not only in Japan but around the world with kind of non-sustainable Human human rights issues or non sustainable business practices in general, and and in the book uh, I highlight ways of of moving your business forward, and and the cost of not adopting sustainable business practices is rising extraordinarily. So I highlight that in the book, and hopefully it will be um, kind of an incentive and a way for companies to take a look at their business practices and and hopefully align them more with. United Nations SDGs and with the ESG strategies. So those are a couple of things that I would I would ask. Right,
0: and thank you so much for spending two hours with us. I think uh, Enrique have no more questions. I think he's still speechless. But with that <laughs> said, <laughs> with that said, uh, I I hope that uh, your new business goes well. And I'm sorry all this happened, but at the same time, I'm very grateful that uh, you took the time to explain the situation to us. No,
2: SK and Enrique, I'm very grateful to you guys. You know, I think, I think we're we're moving things in the right direction. We're 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 providing options. We're showing, uh, we're showing ways that, you know, a great Japan can become even greater, and 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 get out of some of these traps of human rights abuses. And and I think at the end of the day, it will be it will be beneficial. So I really appreciate what you guys are doing. I know, um, you know. Uh, abduction issues are are horrendous, and I've had friends that have gone through it, and uh, you have my full support and again, I think we're we're fighting the same battle here, so uh, thank you for for calling on me, thank you for your time, and thank you to all the listeners for uh, being so patient and listening. If people have questions, they should they should reach out to us, reach out to me directly i'm happy I'm happy to engage people.
0: If you are interested in the materials, books, and links that we discuss, you are welcomed to check out the show notes. We have included everything there. Now, I would like to remind everyone that our goal here is to share knowledge with you guys and show that you're not alone in this. With that said, if you need specific legal advice, please get your own independent advice from a qualified legal practitioner. If you're a minor and you happen to have difficulty in understanding certain parts within this episode, please approach a responsible adult or someone knowledgeable and ask them for clarification. We have done our best to make sure that it doesn't offend anyone. And if you have further questions or comments regarding Find My Parent or the interview, you can mail me at at sk.findmyparent.org. If you are someone who got separated from your own parent and would like to find your parent again, please go to findmyparent.org and fill out your details. With the help of our smart algorithms and matching technology, We hope to help you find your alienated parent again. If you're part of an NGO or even a private company passionate about this topic, please reach out through the contact us page and findmyparent.org and we hope to work together with you. All right, folks, that's it for this week. Speak to you next week. Take care till then.